those thoughts here. Now, as we come to chapter 20, uh, what's been going on, of course, we've seen the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the Sadducees and the scribes and the, the prophets, they're, they're already annoyed with Jesus. Well, annoyed is probably uh, too light a word. They, they hate him. Uh, everything he does uh, gets under them and, and irritates them and causes them such consternation. And he's, he's constantly undermining their, their authority and showing how they have strayed from the true God and, and what God really wants them to do. And so for, for a while now, they've been plotting to kill him, just waiting for the right opportunity. So they keep trying to trap him in ways and trick him into a way where they can capture him. But now that the feast of, of Passover is coming up and, and everything is, is just going so crazy at the moment, their plan is to wait until after the feast of the Passover when all the crowds disperse. Then they can quietly just get rid of Jesus and do away with him. And he, he, they, can, they can kill him. No one will really notice. The crowds are, are gone. So they plan to carry that out after. But the last couple of days, the things we've seen just in the previous verses of Luke chapter 9, the last couple of days have really infuriated them. So we've seen the, the triumphal entry and Jesus coming down into Jerusalem riding on that donkey and the people praising him and singing his praises and, and casting their coats and the palm branches in front of him as, as a way of honour and, and praise to him coming into Jerusalem, hoping that he is coming as the great Messiah who will free them and set up his kingdom. Of course, that wasn't Jesus' plan. We, we talked about that. But that's what they're hoping for. That's what they're praying for. And then the next day, Jesus goes back into Jerusalem. And we saw this last week when Jesus goes back into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple. And in the temple, he sees all the trading going on and the, the, the business that had built up around it. And it just angers him to no end. And he, he throws everything over the tables over and casts the people out and cleanses the temple. Now, this is a particular affront to the religious leaders there because that is their domain. The temple is their place, their place of control and, and where they exercise their greatest authority over the, the people and, and supposedly lead people to God, but they haven't been doing that at all. So all of these things that have happened in these last couple of days are, are, are Jesus completely undermining their authority and showing them to be the hypocrites that they genuinely are. So here, as we come to chapter 20, we come to a section which is often called the day of questions uh, because there's a number of questions that come to Jesus through here, most of them trying to trap Jesus or capture him in a way so that they can just quickly start to do away with him. He'll convict himself and they don't have to worry about trying to come up with some charge. So as he's doing that, he's now spending a lot of time in the temple. So let's read here at chapter 20. We're going to read from verse 1 through verse 18 and uh, quickly take some thoughts this morning from there. So uh, Luke chapter 20 and verse 1, it says, Now it happened on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? These things, of course, is what's happened the last few days in his teachings. 
Or who, uh, who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then do you not believe me? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know whether it was from heaven or where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now, at vintage time or harvest time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another servant. And they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dresses and give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Let's have a word of prayer before we we continue. Our Heavenly Father... As we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would use it in a great way today as we, we listen, as we come for understanding. Lord, let it reach into our hearts and Lord, fill us with joy as your people as we see what you have done for us. Lord, may it open the eyes of those who need to see your great grace and salvation. Thank you and praise you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So here we are. Jesus is now spending time in the temple in these days that follow. And he's, he's teaching. And, and I, I love that, that Luke tells us what he is, is teaching. He's teaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel. Can you imagine what it would have been like to hear the gospel come out of the lips of Jesus? That is a, quite a, an amazing thing as I, I ponder that. But we have the the beauty of being able to hear this gospel and hear what he says in in his word for us today. Now, as as Jesus comes in and he's teaching and the scribes and the Pharisees come in, the first question that they ask him to to try and trap him here is one of authority. They're trying to establish, because he's been 
undermining their authority constantly and coming into the temple and he's teaching with authority to the people. He's cleansed out the temple. He's ridden in on on uh, this donkey with great praise and they're wanting to know what gives you the right to take this praise? What gives you the right to have this authority and preach this way? Because he's taking what they think is theirs. They think it is their right, their position to have the authority over the people and over the word of God. So Jesus asks them a question. They're asking him, how are you going to prove your authority? So Jesus turns the tables and he asks them a question about John the Baptist. It puts them in a particular situation because either way they go is going to put them in a bad place with, uh, with God or with the people. And so they don't answer. Now Jesus has been very clear in his time and very clear in showing who he was, why he was there. He has proved himself with his miracles and with his teachings and with everything. So it is no secret, and it has been no secret, who Jesus says his authority comes from. His Father and from himself because he is God. So he chooses here not to jump into the argument with them and go round and round over an argument which they have plenty of evidence, they know what is there, they know the truth, but they're choosing not to believe. So he's not going to argue with them on something that they're not going to listen to Anyway, so instead of spending time wasting his time on this argument about whose authority, he's going to tell them a parable, a story about what is going to happen, about the reality of the circumstances they are in. Jesus has given them plenty of proof, and now he's going to show them why it is the way it is and where this is going to take them. So we're going to learn a little bit about our own nature here as we look at this parable and also a lot about God and his great purpose. I've got only two points, and if you receive the email uh, I sent to you, you'll have the outline. I haven't put in a lot of fill-in blanks and things like that because it can be a little bit hard, but you'll have my outline, and you can follow along if you, you like, if you, you're able to have that. But it's a pretty simple one, and the first we're going to look at is this, that God's love is deep, And we're going to consider that for a few minutes and then conclude with the thought that God's purpose is eternal. So let's start with this idea that we see here first, that God's love is deep. In this, we see that God cares completely. His care for his people is uh, incomprehensible in what he has done. Let's start simply by just identifying the cast of this parable so we know what it is. This seems to be, and and is very clearly, perhaps one of the the easiest parables of Jesus to understand. It's very straightforward. Everything seems to be right there. The definitions in it are, are very clear throughout Scripture. So let's just quickly identify who is who here. In this story that Jesus tells, he tells about a vineyard owner. The vineyard owner is clearly here to represent God. God owns this vineyard. The tenants who he hires it out to, the vine dressers that are hired to look after it here, are the religious leaders of Israel. That's who has been given some authority by the owner to do what is best for the vineyard. The servants that are sent along the way, so Luke tells us about three servants that get sent along the way. The servants that are sent along the way represent to us the Old Testament prophets. 
The prophets that God sent, the vine vineyard owner, sends to the religious leaders along the way to correct, to warn of what is to come. And so these tenants, these vine dressers here, represent the Old Testament prophets. And very clearly, the son who the vineyard owner sends is there to represent Jesus Christ. And that's the, the simple things there. They're easy to there. But what about the vineyard? The vineyard is Israel. That's who this vineyard represents. It represents the people of Israel. The idea of Israel being a vineyard is, is one which is, is throughout the Old Testament and has been used often. So when Jesus gives this parable to the people there and he talks about this vineyard and the vineyard, uh, vineyard owner, it's something they're already familiar with. They understand that Israel is pictured as a vineyard through the Old Testament. It's something they're quite familiar with. In fact, in the Old Testament, we'll look at a couple of these uh, through. In, in Isaiah chapter 51, we find uh, one of these uh, here. Sorry, not Isaiah 51, Isaiah 5. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, Now, let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Verse 7 of Isaiah 5, uh, coming to the end of that passage where he describes it, says this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. Uh, that's one of those areas which shows us that Jesus or that God talks about Israel as a vineyard. In Psalm, Psalm 80 is another one of these great psalms which speaks of Israel as a vineyard. And in Psalm 80 and in verse 8, says, You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. He goes on to describe a little bit more there, but that's clearly saying how he, he took Israel out of the, the, the captivity of Egypt and brought them through the wilderness and planted them in the promised land. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 21 says, Yet I have planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? So when Jesus spoke this parable to them, and he talks about this vineyard to them, when he spoke it to the people, they knew what he was talking about. They understood what this was going to be about. That when he spoke about a vineyard, they knew it was about them. About Israel and what it, what it meant. Now as we look at this, this parable and we think about this great vineyard that God has, has done and the way that he has, has been with his people, we see that God has given the greatest provisions here. Luke cuts a few details out because he's, he's moving us to, he just wants us to get to the main focus of what it is and, and move us along in the direction of his, his purpose. But we find in, in the, the same account in Matthew and in Mark, we get a little bit more detail of this. And in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 33, Matthew records first the words of Jesus. It says, hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. So in the description that we're given here of this vine, and we see this in, in other places, is that 
he, he didn't just buy a vineyard and hope it went well. He bought the vineyard and he did everything he could to make sure it was going to be profitable. He bought good land. He put a wall all the way around it to, to keep people and trouble out of his vineyard. He dug a wine press so that they could make the, 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 the juice out of, of and the wine out of the grapes they had there. And he built a tower so they could watch over it, make sure everything was okay. There was protection. There was provision. Everything that was needed here for a profitable and beautiful vineyard was prepared. God had done it in the passages we read just a moment ago. They continue. So in Psalm 80, verse 9 says, You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its bows. She sent out her bows to the sea and her branches to the river. It was profitable. It was beautiful as described in Isaiah chapter 5 again in verse uh, 2 again as he's describing Israel as this vine he says he dug it up that is the land and cleared it cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine he built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it so he expected it to bring forth good grapes but it brought forth wild Grapes. Oh, and now, O oh inhabitant of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? As he describes what he's done there, and he says, What more could I have done to make it profitable, to make it beautiful, to make it prosper? He's done everything possible for it to thrive. This, he speaks of his people Israel, how he has done everything for them to thrive, to know God, to to see the, the beauty of who he is and to follow him and be the people they needed to be to spread the gospel around the world. God is a good God. He has provided everything necessary for our flourishing. You're this care that God takes for, for Israel here in the beginning, as he said, is true of God's care for all of his people. He is a good God, and he gives us everything we need for our flourishing. God's care is complete. Secondly, in this idea that God's love is deep, we see that God's mercy is long. His mercy is long. Now, although God has, has given his people everything they need to flourish, and to be what they need to be, and to see the great blessings and glory of God, his people rebel. They rebel against him. God, when he made this nation, charged men to care for the vineyard. That's the the vine dressers. They were to have Israel's interests at heart. They were to lead the people of Israel to love and serve God with all of their heart, their soul, and mind. They were to be stewards of God, over Israel. But instead, they rebelled against God and they led people astray. See, one of the things that that Jesus is driving the point home here with this parable is he's showing that this wasn't their vineyard, but God's. See, so the people in in the parable we read, when the, the son comes, they say, we'll kill him so the vineyard can be ours. 
And there's a lot of tradition that goes behind that about how that could happen, and it's not really uh, pertinent to, to hear. Just the fact that what is in their mind is that what they really wanted was what was not theirs. The vineyard was God's, but they wanted control of it. They wanted the vineyard for themselves. They wanted the power. They wanted the authority. They wanted the prosperity. They wanted the glory of being able to say this was theirs. And so they rebelled against God. They rejected their responsibility to God in feeding the people and leading them to him and instead fed their own desires. They are no different than any of us are today. Uh, We are all very much the same. Our responsibility is to live for God. That is what we have been given to do, to be fruitful for him. But we reject him. And we desire the glory for ourselves. We pursue our own selfish ambition. But even though they continue to rebel, even though they rejected his his ways, God continues to warn. And so in this this parable, he is reminding them of their history. And this is what the, the, the messengers are about, the servants that are sent are about. He continued to warn them. And he constantly sent the prophets to them. He sent the prophets to them to warn them of what their rebellion would do. He sent the prophets to to guide them and bring them back to God so that they would lead the people as they ought to do and the people would find uh, what God wanted for them and how they could be blessed and, and fruitful the way God had wanted them to be. Now Luke tells us that three servants were sent because that gives us the, the idea. We get the point from the three servants of what was going on. But Matthew and Mark tell us that... Uh, God sent many more. It says he sent many servants. And if you look through the history of Israel, you can see that's true. God sent prophets constantly to them. And they treated them with such disrespect, such violence. Here, uh, he, he talks about them being beaten. The word beaten means to be treated very violently. They include killing the prophets But God does not give up easily on his people. He would send one prophet and they would reject the words of that prophet and continue on their way. They may change for a moment, but then they'd quickly turn back. And so God would send another and the same would happen. They'd reject the words of that prophet and God would send another. We know many of these prophets. We read from Ezekiel, one of the prophets, uh, already this morning. These prophets came and spoke the word of God to them so that they could know God, but they continued to reject him. See, God doesn't give up easily on his people. He keeps sending, he keeps warning them, he keeps trying to draw them back to himself. He doesn't discard them and throw them away easily. And that is true of any of God's people. He keeps calling to them, he keeps warning God is faithful to them even when they are not faithful to him. God is patient. He is patient and he is long-suffering. God's care is complete. God's mercy is long. Thirdly, in this idea of the deepness of God's love, we see this indeed, that God's grace is deep. His greatest plea... They have acted shamefully, wickedly, even illegally. 
these men in this story. But the father doesn't give up. He keeps sending servants and he keeps sending servants and he keeps sending servants and they keep disrespecting his servants and disrespecting him and not following him and doing what he wants all along trying to take the glory for themselves. Finally, it comes to the place as we see in this parable. Jesus says that he is going to send or God says he's going to send his son. The father doesn't give up. His last option is the greatest, most valuable thing he has to send. This is the most powerful way he has to reach out to his people. He sends his son saying, surely they may disrespect my servants, but surely they will honor my son." uses that that great word which is often used of Jesus in the Bible, that he is the beloved son. Or send his beloved son, which means the one and only, but particularly it means it is a son who has a unique place as the beloved only child. So this father, this vineyard owner, sends his son, his only son, his unique son, to them, knowing and, and hoping that they will listen to him and respect him and be drawn back. Because no one can carry the authority of the father like the father's son. This is a gesture of pure grace. Instead of opening his wrath, instead of pouring out his judgment on these people, he opens the treasures of his heart. He gives his most valued relationship. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, it says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's desire isn't destruction. He is long-suffering and patient because he wants us to repent to believe him, to follow him, to submit to him. And in his ultimate gesture, there is the ultimate rejection. See, Jesus is showing here, he knows what's coming. He knows they're going to to disrespect him. He knows they're going to kill him. This is what this story is about. He's exposing their heart of what's to come. And we read at the end of our text, verse 19, we see that indeed, that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to plot even more deeply to kill him. Now, this fact that the father sends the son here to this, this volatile situation is not a careless act of the father. It's not the father carelessly sending his son Jesus tells us that the son goes under the instruction of the father willingly. John chapter 10, Jesus tells us that no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down. He came willingly at the request, at the command of the father, but he came willingly. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Jesus came to die. 
And it's his death that would make the way for our salvation from sin. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9 says, in this, uh, in this the love of God was manifested, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. God's heart is for salvation, for your rescue. Don't reject him. This shows us that God's love is deep. And secondly, and lastly here, as we look at the conclusion of this this parable that Jesus brings to us from verse 16 through the end, we find that God's purpose is eternal. Verse 16 says, He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Judgment will come. After all of this, so after Jesus gives the parable and shows that these, these people killed the son, the people clearly understood the story. They knew what Jesus was getting at. They knew the horror of this story because at the uh, end of verse 16 there, it says, the people say, certainly not. We, we can't have that. That's, that's not right. We will not do that. They understood the horror of this. Jesus asked the question, and Matthew shows us that uh, here Luke goes straight through and just gives the answer. But Jesus asked the question of the people, what should the vineyard owner do now? They've disrespected and killed his servants. They have killed his son. What is left for the vineyard owner to do? And Matthew 21 and verse 41 says, They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. So even the people, as they stood there and listened to Jesus tell this story, they knew what the only option was that the vineyard owner had to get rid of the the vine dressers, to get rid of the tenants he had there. Everybody knew that. It's the only right decision to make was right and just thing for vengeance and judgment to come. In Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 7, which we've we've read before, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. He looked to his people to see the, the, the right things to see righteousness and justice and instead all he found was abuse and rejection. Jesus has given them warning after warning after warning as he approaches his, his death. We've spoken about this before even in the last few weeks. The time of salvation is limited. God's opportunity to find rescue from condemnation has a finite time to be accepted. That time will come to an end and then it will be too late. See, this isn't God being mean or vindictive. God is giving what we rightly deserve. So it says that they lost their blessing. He would destroy them, he would take the vineyard away, and he would give it to another. This is a a shift 
here. There is a shift in the way God turns. He's turning, if you will, in his, his movements and his purpose. And he's moving himself from these people of Israel and shifting to a, a different, or not a different plan, but the next phase of his purpose. God would turn to work through the Gentiles now, through the church. It's no longer about a nation, but now it's about a people. He would take the blessings and he would take the beauty and the joy of what he had to offer and he would shift it to all those who believe him. All those who will put their faith, both Jew and Gentile, but they must believe. God's blessings will flow on those who believe. Today, you can know God's blessing. You can believe him for your salvation from sin. Recognize that you have sinned against him. You have been trying to take the authority which is rightly his to control your own life, to reject his authority and not to submit to what he wants. You have tried to run your own life. Sinned and rebelled against the king, but today you can find the blessings that he offers by obeying, by listening. Don't waste your life and end in judgment because you were too proud to submit to God. Jesus will rule. So he describes for us here, he says, Then he took, in verse 17, looked at them and said, What then is that which is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Build your life on Jesus. See, he switches metaphors here. We go from the vineyard to another well-known metaphor of Jesus being the cornerstone, the rock. The point of the metaphor here as we move on is to, to let us know and to remind us that the death of the Son isn't the end. Jesus' purpose doesn't end at his death, but rather that he becomes the great cornerstone. It shows us to the, the future. It's just the beginning. What they rejected will become the most important thing in this life. This implies his resurrection. It implies his eternal rule. He is not just important he is the most important. See, the chief cornerstone. I'm not a builder. Some of you, you are, and you'll know a lot more about building and foundations. But what I do know is this. In this time, the chief cornerstone was the fundamental stone of building. It was the stone that everything was measured from. It was the stone that everything rested on, was built from. Without this stone, without this cornerstone, you pull this stone out and the whole thing, the whole structure becomes unsteady and falls. Jesus is what you need in your life. Not just now in uncertain times, but all times. He is what you need. Jesus is the only one that can save you from judgment. We've spoken about this more in a past sermon, which you can, you can find on our website called A Rock Solid Life. And you can hear more about building your life on Jesus. He is the only one that gives purpose to this life. It tells us that some will fall on him and others will be crushed by him. Both speak of judgment. 
Rejecting him only brings pain and judgment. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians when he said, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Let me close by just showing you there are a lot of reasons why people reject Jesus. But here are a few reasons why people reject him or stumble over him. We stumble on his perfect standard. This, that's, he is perfect. I, I can't reach that standard. Well, that's kind of the point of this salvation. People stumble on his amazing grace. That is, we look at that and, and our pride says, I don't need his help. I don't need what he has to offer. I don't need all of that. I can do it on my own. I can work myself. I can make myself acceptable. So we stumble on his grace. Or we stumble on the wideness of his mercy. That is, we look at the world and say, how could he possibly offer forgiveness to someone like that? Someone who has fallen that low to someone who is that evil or that wicked. How could he possibly forgive someone like that? Or we stumble on his certain judgment. If God is loving, surely he can't judge. But he is just. Even the people, as they heard this parable that Jesus tells, recognize that the only answer, the only way to have justice was for the father, for the vineyard owner, to bring judgment. Or we stumble on his narrow way, as Jesus said that he is the only way to salvation, the only way to the father. There is no other way. We stumble on that narrowness. This passage begins by telling us that Jesus was preaching the gospel. And this parable is no different. It is an extension of exactly what Jesus was preaching. He is preaching to us the gospel. We are not unlike the religious leaders that Jesus was speaking of. We reject Jesus' authority because we want control. We want to live our life the way we want to live it. We believe that we can tell God what to do. God won't judge me because I'm good, we say. Or at least I'm better than them. We make assumptions about what God should or shouldn't do. We have ignored, we have disrespected, and even violently opposed those who have tried to warn us about his way. Yet God is patient. He is slow to wrath and of great mercy. He has not treated us as we deserve, but rather has shown us overwhelming grace. Today is one of those, show, those illustrations of his overwhelming grace. You hear the gospel. You hear the way to be saved. What is it about Jesus that you are stumbling over? God is not out to destroy you. His desire is to save you from destruction. See his love and see his mercy. Hear his warnings and come to him. Believe him as your savior. 
this is a, a, a weird time to, to, to be like this, and it, it's hard you, to, with the, the distance and over the, the internet, but if you want to know more, if you want to know more about how Jesus can save you from your sin or understand more about it, please, please contact me. You can contact me in, in any number of ways. All my details are on our website, cambridgebaptist.org.au. You can find my phone number there, my email. You can find a, a number of ways to contact me or through social media. Message me or, or send me a message and I will answer and I will help you in any way that I can because I want you to know glory of God's forgiveness and His grace. Believer, look at the depths of God's love for you. His patience with you. Let it fill you with joy and with satisfaction. Let it sustain you through your hard times. The depth of His love for you is unfathomable. Absolutely unfathomable. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message of this parable that you have brought to us this morning. It shows us that you are deeply, deeply loving, that you care, that you are patient, that you are long-suffering, and that your heart is not for destruction but to save from destruction. Help us, dear God, that know you as our Savior, to glory in that, to see the great vastness of your mercy and the unfathomable depths of your love and to rejoice and find joy and peace and glory in that. And dear God, for those who do not yet know that great peace, that great joy that comes from forgiveness of sins, we pray that you would open their eyes. Lord, breathe life into their souls. That they would come to know you as Savior. Thank you, dear God, for this opportunity to be able to share the gospel, to be able to hear the gospel. Lord, may your spirit use it in a mighty way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm glad you're able to join with us this morning. We're not going to close with a song this morning, but I hope you'll join us again next week and we'll continue to work on the little technical glitches we have and work those out. Uh, if you can, join us on Wednesday. If you don't have the code to get on for Wednesday, um, get in touch with me somehow and I will make sure that you can, you can have that and uh, join us on Wednesday. So let's conclude our time together with these words of benediction, which I'll read from Psalm 67. Psalm 67 and verse 1 and 2. This is my prayer for you. It's a prayer for my family. It's a prayer for all of us as we seek God's blessing. Psalm 67, verse 1 and 2. God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth your salvation among all nations. God bless you all. I'll see you next time.